You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producer's Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to get to David Chase in just one minute. He's going to give you a master class in musical education. I learned a ton. You are going to as well. Uh, but before we get to that, this week's podcast is brought to you by The Other Palace. Ever heard of The Other Palace? It's a theater in London town. That's right. Owned by Andrew Lloyd Webber, specializing in new musicals. Check out The Other Palace. Google that. You will see a whole new crop of musicals. We're actually holding a social uh, there in January. It's a great, great venue. Daddy Longlegs was done there years before, before I moved it here to Off-Broadway. They've got three original musicals coming up. Showstopper, Amdrom, a musical comedy, The Serial Cafe. They've also got flexible membership and subscription options. If you are in the UK, if you live there, check it out. It's a great way to get a sneak peek at a lot of new stuff, including some of Andrew's stuff. They just did a workshop of Unmasked uh, two weeks ago that I went over for. But you can get some great insight into what's happening in the new musical front over at The Other Palace. Check it out, The Other Palace. And hey, producers here... The Other Palace is a great place to try out your musical out of town. Out of town also means across the pond. Little spoiler alert, it's cheaper over there. Check out The Other Palace and now on to David Chase and the podcast. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective Podcast. And today we have a very special guest because if you did a word cloud of like all the podcasts we've done, one of the biggest names and words that would appear is today's guest. Please welcome to the podcast, the Broadway dance arranger, Mr. David Chase. Welcome, David. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So just a few of David's credits, the upcoming Tootsie, the upcoming Kiss Me Kate, Carousel, Frozen, Anastasia, Hello Dolly, Evita, so on, so on, and so on. He's also been a music supervisor, done just about everything you can on the music side of the biz. Um, but we're going to start off with your the occupation that you do most often these days. These days, yes. Please tell us what the F a dance music arranger actually is. Well, if you were to ask a, a classical musician what defines a composer... They would say that the composer has to not only write all the melodies, but write all the harmonies, write all of the counter melodies, and orchestrate, meaning apply it to all the instruments. In the world of theater, it's a long-standing tradition that, that the only thing that really defines a composer in theater is writing the melody line. Every other element of music as it exists in the musical theater, and as well as in pop music generally, is an arrangement done by somebody. Now, sometimes it is done by the composer. 
Um, but in theater, because we have limited time to do many things and everything happens so quickly, there has become a specialized person who uh, basically sits at, at, with the choreographer as the choreographer is working through what they are going to do and essentially is the, is the bond between or the, or the bridge between what the composer has written and what the choreographer wants to do physically. Now, that's a very basic and simple thing, and, and the history of the position really started with Agnes DeMille, who, in doing the first big dream ballet in Oklahoma, basically had to have somebody create the music, and it wasn't Richard Rogers. Obviously, they were working with Richard Rogers' melodies and, and uh, using those songs but somebody else put all that together. Now, the first person that really started to do this seriously was a woman named Trudy Rittman, who started with uh, Carousel. And so basically the entire Carousel ballet is structured by Trudy Rittman using melodies of Rogers, but reharmonizing, re rhythmicizing. I just made up that word. I hope that's okay. It's a good okay. one, actually. It's a so rhythmic, we'll, I like it. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, and basically being the adjunct to the, or not, I won't even say adjunct, it's the wrong word, um, but being the bridge between the music department and, and director and choreographer or the, you know, the, the visual and movement side of telling a story. Because we're all in the business of telling a story. So it's all about how we use the different tools. And what I have loved about being a dance arranger is that it's a way to, I, I never wanted to be a composer. Um, never, never. I I never studied music as far as that goes, and that's maybe a, another a well, sidebar. We're we'll come get back into to that. that. Okay. <laughs> so, but I always loved theater, and I loved the idea of telling stories um, and using music as a tool. And I found, and so when I before I came to New York, I spent four years after college in Boston playing Forbidden Broadway, which is where I sort of. That's how I learned about Broadway was through the sort of eyes of Gerard Alessandrini, which is a very somewhat skewed perspective um, and a brilliantly funny one, but also one that's full of great love and craft and knowledge. Um, so I came to New York sort of armed with an understanding, having watched how he kind of deconstructed the essence of a show and then restructured or reformed a lyric that would kind of get into the middle of the show. I feel like that's what I started to do with music, which is how do you essentially look at the essence of a piece of music? And because I have a degree in biology, which goes to that other conversation, I, I like thinking of the fact that a song has an essential DNA. And you can't really change what the song is, which is also why, and I'll talk more biology, neurobiologically speaking, we connect with melodies as that's the way our brain functions. We hear melodies in literal ways because our, our brain actually resonates at pitch. Um, all the other elements of music do not affect our understanding of a melody, which is why in the Great American Songbook, you can take a song from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and sometimes later, but not as much now, and rethink it and rearrange it literally in different ways to tell different kinds of stories, to use melodies in different ways, to use, to reharmonize it, to give a different emotional mood, to change the rhythm of it, to 
put it in a different context. So these are essentially all tools that I use, like I said, in concert with a choreographer or with a creative team in general to, for want of a better word, manipulate the music to help tell the story. But it's also not, it's taking songs and creating scores, which some composers do fully, but some do not, especially the dead ones or the ones that, you know, you're doing a, a catalog show somebody has to sort of formulate how the score functions in the context of the show, which is not necessarily the composer. And that's nothing against pop composers now, because, for example, Irving Berlin famously did not read or write music. Somebody had to put down on paper the melodies he was hearing and the harmonies he was hearing. And famous Richard Adler, who uh, co-wrote Damn Yankees and Pajama Game, did not read or write music. Bob Merrill famously played with the xylophone, um, somebody else, usually unknown, had to take those melodies and transform them into a Broadway musical. Mel Brooks was the same way. Mel, heard, yes. Right? So kudos to Glenn Kelly, who took the mel melodic fragments. I won't even say melodies. I'll say melodic fragments of Mel Brooks that Mel Brooks wrote for the producers and turned it into a score for a Broadway show. And one of the sort of the confusing things, there's not really a term for the person who does that. Um, and so sometimes you are, as the dance arranger, you're basically fashioning the whole show musically. Sometimes you're literally just doing the dance music. When I've done a show, say, with like Steve Flaherty or Janine Tesori, they basically write out every... He's smiling and laughing knowingly. Um <laughs> They, they write every note, or Matt Sklar, every note of the accompaniment, every vocal harmony. Basically, they form everything, but when it gets to the dance, you know, it gets to a point, and then, you know, I can remember Steve Flaherty say, well, I wrote you a nice A7 chord here and left 14 bars blank. Go. Um, you, you know, sometimes it's that specific. Sometimes it's more about, hey, we have a 32-bar song. How are we going to turn that into a huge production number? And that can include everything from, from what is the intro, what is, you know, who's singing when, dance comes in and out of it. And sometimes in a show, when there's movement involved in a, in a, a song, you can reformat the entire song. So that's, it's, it's certainly not a, I mean, it can be a very narrow thing. In its most simple form, it's, hey, there's a kick on that beat, let's put a crash. Um, that's the simplest form of dance arranging. Um, but it can certainly be much, much and should be much more complicated than that because your job is to help tell the story and to, and another way of looking at it, and I'm, I know I'm just going all over the place here, but, um, I think of it the same way that I think of what a lighting designer does, for example, which is that you're helping the audience understand what's important in the storytelling by using music to highlight what movement is happening. So the reason why a lighting designer is a good analogy is if you put spotlights on everything on stage, nothing is special, nothing stands out. You have to say, I'm going to put a spotlight on that person, or I'm going to put a special on that person at that moment so the audience knows to look there. So musically, that's what I try to do with a choreographer is is make sure that I'm helping the choreographer tell the story that needs to be told or to achieve the effect that needs to be to told. It's not always a story. Sometimes 
you know, Anything Goes, the song at the end of Act One of Anything Goes, is really just a big celebration. So there it's like sitting down with Kathleen Marshall and, and talking about, okay, we can do, you know, we, we want to highlight, you know, Reno Sweeney for a period of time, but then now we want to have a back and forth between the men and the women. We want to have a sailor's dance. We want to have a dance of this character. We want to have, and then eventually we want to go towards uh, what she always calls an all skate, which is that everybody's dancing all the time, the whole time. And you're, you're looking at how you're building that whole thing. Um, I've certainly done my share of the kinds of long form things, um, like doing the Havana sequence with Rob Ashford for guys and dolls in the West end, which, which is structuring a whole storytelling using the songs, using the melodies in the show, but in ways that, that are not, right off the the original page um or with bobby longbottom who i know you talked to with like and we because this has been in the news a lot we just did the had the uh 20th anniversary of uh 20th 15th anniversary of flower drum song and that whole opening sequence is a completely new constructed sequence to tell very specific story points through physical movement as well as lyric and so that in a weird way, kind of falls under the rubric of dance arranging. But to go back to, say, Trudy Rittman, Small House of Uncle Thomas is Trudy Rittman's work. She used elements of Richard Rogers' work and elements of Oscar Hammerstein's work, but with Jerome Robbins, they constructed that entire sequence. And so as a dance arranger, you can have a huge impact on the storytelling of the show, and should. Okay, so and breathe. First of all, <laughs> okay. I mean, I that was like, like, you know, I'm a producer. I've mm-hmm. hired many, many dance arrangers, and I asked that question not only for my listeners mm-hmm. but also for me as well. Yeah. So that thank you for that. Uh, second, I think I saw you in Forbidden Broadway in Boston. Yes, okay, I'm from Massachusetts. Okay, 1991. 90, 91. 91, I'd already moved to New York, so probably not. Wait, no, I moved to New York in 91, so it was like 89, 90. Yes, I, I played it from, I was a sub, so the uh, the original pianist in Boston was a guy named Brad Ellis, who, if anybody knows him, it would be, he he's, does great work, he lives in L.A., but he was the onstage pianist for Glee, or on-camera pianist for Glee. Um so he had done the show up to a point. He left to do something else, and they temporarily brought in Fred Barton, who was the original pianist in New York. Um, and so I got hired right after college, and that would have been the fall of 86 to be Fred Barton's understudy slash standby. And uh, then Fred was only there for three or four months. So I took over in January or February of 87 and then left in January of 90. So you graduate from college with your biology yes. major yes. or your biology degree, and then you end up playing at Forbidden Broadway. So obviously you were a piano player before this. You were a musician before this, but... Well, I took, I took piano for five years as a kid. I started late in second grade and by eighth grade after I had hated every moment of it, quit. Convinced my mother to let me quit. But what happened in ninth grade is... And I kept playing piano because it was fun, um, but I How didn't... How good were you? Like, were you like... You oh, I got as far anything. as... Yeah, I could sight read anything, but that's very different from piano lessons. And that's what I eventually realized is that most... Like, I had three separate teachers. Um, all of the, Especially the, the one I had the longest really stressed, no, you must memorize exactly what's on the page and play it the way that I expect you to play it. And I kept being 
really naughty. And like, I remember like one time I was learning a Scott Joplin rag and I decided, oh, I'm going to play it differently and I'm going to swing everything instead of playing it straight eights. And I thought his head was going to explode. Um, but so I, I look back on that and go, oh yeah, I just, I was always interested in, in changing, just seeing what happens if you change something a little bit. But in ninth grade, I encountered a, uh, the, the drama teacher at high school and, and, and that was revelatory and she was fantastic. Joan Bettinger was her name. She passed away about six years ago. Um, seven years ago now. Uh, but she, I, I, the high school did a lot of sort of experiment, not experimental things, but she would let the students play around and do different things. Like we actually, we did cabaret my senior year of high school, which is 1982. And, uh, you know, whoever licenses it, don't be listening right now. Um, we looked at the movie and went, and I went, Oh, I like that song better. And I said, so can I write it down and put it in the show? And she was like, sure. So I didn't realize that that's what I was doing, but I was essentially, I just wrote the song down and I wrote out parts for everyone in the orchestra, having no really, no idea what I was doing, but I liked the song better and we put it in the show. And then we did that with a couple, couple of the songs. We took out a couple of songs. We did a lot of the things that the, the, the roundabout revival did 16 years later um, in my high school. Uh, and, uh, but I don't think anybody ever knew the one thing they did know is for a one act countywide play festival, I took, uh, Barnum had just opened. So we couldn't, we, uh, you couldn't get the rights for it, but for some reason I could find marching band parts. So we wrote our own version of Barnum and I used the marching band parts to, uh, to basically, Turn it into a, a one-act show that had I had nothing to do with what was on Broadway. I'm sure. So even and, back then, you yeah. were you were taking music and creating your own unique derivative of that music. Well, it's like I love doing puzzles. It's kind of the same sort of thing, which is uh, it's a fascination fascination with how just by changing this chord or by changing this instrument or this. Move, changing the rhythm this way, how does that affect your emotional response to this? You know, how do you make something funny with music? How do you make something emotionally touching? How do you, you know, it is, how do you manipulate an audience? It's not distinctly different from, say, writing a film score, except that what you're being conscious of, I mean, if we're talking specifically dance arranging, what you're being conscious of is how it interacts with the movement on stage. If we're talking about arranging in general, it's about how do you shape the entire sort of sequence or the entire song, which is something, again, that many composers do that for their songs, but many do not. Who's the composer that you've worked with that has the least amount of technical musical skill that is the Mel Brooks-like type? Um, well, let's see, here's the challenge. What is technical musical skill? Because music is... Music is like you can be fluent in a language, but if you're completely fluent in it and you can't read or write it, does that make you less fluent? No, you're still extremely fluent. So, for example, someone like Elton John does not read music or write out music. But when we were working on Billy Elliot, we took a trip to when, where he was doing his uh, show in Las Vegas because we wanted him to write some new material between New York, or between London and New York. Um, and 
we a bunch of several of us went out there and Lee uh, Lee the uh, Hall the lyricist and book writer uh, had written some lyrics so Elton I remember just like put them up in front of himself on the piano he kind of re- looked them down once or twice and then he turned on a little recording device on a MIDI piano and just played perfectly what he had written never heard him he didn't stumble he didn't make a mistake he did it exactly and it was like he had received this song so to say that he doesn't have musical i mean yes technically he doesn't read or write music and yet he is a living embodiment of music i mean there are plenty henry krieger who wrote dream girls plays the piano but he is not a um, he's not a trained musician, but it comes utterly from the heart and the ear in a brilliant way. Um, there are many people, again, I mentioned Irving Berlin earlier, there are many people historically who write music without necessarily having the tools to write it down. Can you tell me specifically about your process? So you're hired by... What are you working on right now, actually? So I just came right now for some, from some pre-production for Tootsie. Great. Working with uh, Dennis Jones, who I've known for well over 20 years. When uh, I music directed a production of Little Me with Martin Short and Dennis was in the ensemble. That's a fantastic Which production. was a fun, fun production. We all laughed so hard. Um, and... Uh, and then Dennis, in the ensuing years, trend, you know, changed from a performer to a choreographer, and and uh, so this has been really fun working with him because it's sort of finding a new. This is the first time we've worked together in this dynamic as dance arranger and choreographer, um, and uh, I'm also doing pre-production with Warren Carlyle uh, on the Kiss Me Kate revival of the revival. Now. And that's and Warren's great because I got to know him, got to work with him on Hello Dolly. Um, it was the first time that we had worked together, and and um, to talk about the process, a lot of it is about you. You know, I can't really write anything, and I would I would think that most choreographers would say they can't choreograph anything until we know what story we're telling, what we're doing, what our goal is, um, and to have a sense of what what we want the audience to experience whether it's are we you know are we in reality is this a diegetic moment and that's do we know the word diegetic please explain. okay i, I will do, explain but just in case um it's this is one of my favorite words and i, I too. and anybody who's listened to me talk anywhere is going to go oh yeah not that again um but to me one of the things that is so important with music in the theater is understanding from an audience perspective, are they actually experiencing? Is the are the the members of the are the characters on stage? Rather, let me start again. Are the characters on stage experiencing the music in real time, or are they not aware that there is music? So, diegetic music uh, in film, for example, is with there's a radio playing in the background. There's a you know band playing over there in the corner of the bar. There's uh, you know, somebody singing happy birthday. That's the characters are aware when music is diegetic. And we do this all the time in theater. For example, everything like, you know, the hot box girls, they're, when they sing, it's diegetic. Um, when they sing, take back your mink, 
But when she sings Adelaide's Lament, it's not. She's not aware that she is singing. So why is that important? It's important because if, if we're presenting something that's diegetic, then it tells us how the performer approaches the song, how the, the actual actor is approaching the song. Because if it's diegetic, then they're not actually singing it. The character is singing it. And if the character is not a great singer, they're going to sing it differently than the actor. Okay, does that, is that slightly confusing? But an example would be Sally Bowles in Cabaret is not supposed to be a good singer. That means that we hear it differently because it's Sally Bowles singing than we would if the actress sounded not very good. That may not be a good example because we've heard plenty of actresses who can't sing be, do Sally Bowles. Um, but it came up actually a lot in Billy Elliot where, like for example, the top of Act 2 or the second song of Act 2 is dad, as Billy's dad gets up and sings a song at the Christmas party. Well, he that character should not be a brilliant singer. So you can have a brilliant singer play the part, but because it's diegetic, it allows that person to sing like the character, and that's a different approach, especially if it's a period piece. Now, why I bring that up in the context of dance is that if you're doing a piece that's set in 1934 and it's a performance number, then you as an arranger need to know that or need to do your research and listen to what 1934 sounded like because you're trying to do a piece from 1934. On the other hand, I'll take Les Mis as an example, where there's nothing about that score that remotely sounds like France in the middle of the 19th century. But that's okay, because they're not, even though they're kind of nods to sort of certain things, they're not trying to sound like that time. In the same way that My Fair Lady, there's nothing really about My Fair Lady that sounds like Edwardian England. It actually sounds more like, you know, Vienna from, you know, all... But that's okay because it has its own integrity, but there are no performance numbers. Nobody is actually... Well, I mean, I think in this last revival, they, they took some of the things and created performance moments, but... As conceived, the show is, does not have perform people are not aware that they are singing. That's very different from, say, Gypsy, where every time Baby June and the Newsboys comes out to sing, it sounds like it's it it is a diegetic number. They know that they are singing. So where you know where it gets really interesting is in, for example, the MC in Cabaret is kind of bridging both worlds because he's commenting on the world, but he is still performing in the context of the cabaret. Um, anyway, that was a long diversion to basically say that I think so much of the work of a dance arranger with a choreographer is, is really delineating between the world of are the characters performing this, which is a different kind of musical language, than is this a book moment with movement? And, uh, and that also helps, I mean, the that defines what the choreography is. What do you think of the current, you've seen a lot of different musical styles mm -hmm. in your, 
I think I think we are. Here. Yeah, in on Broadway, we're we have you have to be jacks of all trade. Yeah. What do you, is there a trend you see in the new composers that are coming up as you start to hear melodies, see melodies? Anything you're noticing about today's musical versus the '90s when you got here? Um, well, the '90s are a bad decade to use as an example because nobody was writing, or very few people were writing new things in the '90s. Um, I, you know, I've I do a lot of stuff with people that were writing '30s, '40s, '50s, and I'm always amazed at the level of craft. I think now there's less opportunity for young writers to develop craft, which doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing so but one trend i really don't like is non-rhyming in lyrics i find it i find it very lazy and i get that in the pop world it's interesting i had a conversation with a friend who is a big pop songwriter who has done some theater writing and i remember him saying that well in the pop world we consider it lazy to rhyme and I was like, what do, what do you mean by that? Said, well, it's like, that's cheap if it rhymes. Too easy. It's too easy. It's like, well, mm, okay. But I can tell you that as an audience member sitting in, a, in the audience, the point of the rhyme, I mean, yes, you want to avoid the obvious rhymes, but the point of a rhyme is to help the audience stay with you because it's really hard to hear lyrics. And I think that's one, another, I mean, there's a whole sequence of events that, has to do with like hiding the orchestra pits, having too much electronic sort of enhancement all the way around, audiences failing to, or not failing, but have changed enough that we don't listen the same way that we used to in theater. Um, we, we want to have the music blasted at us rather than us having to lean forward and be engaged in the process. Um, and a lot of that is because of air conditioning and moving lights because the sound floor is so much higher. Therefore, the music has to be louder. Therefore, the singing has to be louder. Um, it also used to be that people choreographed and staged so that if someone had a big solo, they came down to the edge of the stage and faced the audience. But now I've seen a lot of, a lot of staging where people are staged to face upstage, and I've worked on shows where the choreographer or the director will say, you know, I can't hear it. Turn it up. Turn it up. And the, the truth is, you're never going to hear it if they're facing upstage. I don't care how loud it is. You will never understand what they're saying because you're taking away one of our tools, which is to, as an audience member, be able to see lips moving. Or in the, you know, the same thing with just sound in general, you're, you're taking away our engagement with the theater. I remember somebody said when, um, or Mike Ockrent, when the Ford Center, what is it now? It's something else now. Now it it's, is it's, the... I don't know. But I can't, okay, wherever Harry Hilton, Potter is. Where are the Harry Potter The Harry the Potter music. It's the theater. lyric. That's the lyric. The, thank you. Well, when that first opened, he said there will never be a successful show here until they change the seat widths. Because he felt the seats were too wide because it didn't give the audience the ability to have a communal experience watching theater which I thought was very interesting you know that in essentially saying that the individual theater goer would be too comfortable in their own little bubble and not really relate to the people sitting next to them because they were too far away so when the theater owners tell us that they have to keep the seats narrow there's an artistic reason why they have to yes okay that's a good good it's a good yeah. spin it's a good like spin it's a good spin yeah uh, they, they owe you for that yeah okay and I'm sure the check is in the mail <laughs> 
So, you know, I've never really quite thought of it in this way, but you you really are at the center of the wheel for so many of the different elements that make up a musical. So what have you seen in the state of today's choreography and how that's mm-hmm. changed and what are you what are what's good what's not so good well you know we we are all in the theater trying to figure out how to entertain and address and the the, the next generation of theater goers and i have two uh sons who are 17 and 21 um who have certainly grown up around theater but you know the music they listen to is very different from what's on Broadway. I will say Hamilton drew them right in, and I consider that a, you know, a massive achievement. Not just because of the music stylistically, but because it was very clear that every single person on that creative team was telling the same story, using all of their craft and all of their skill to tell the story in front of them. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. If there's if there's any takeaway, I think that. We as an audience want to walk into a theater and want to be transported. We want to enter into a different world and have a journey. And if everyone's not on the same page, and what do I mean by that? I mean, if there's not clear communication between the creative team, the performers, the, you know, even the marketing people, uh, the producers, if we're not all telling the same story in the same way, it's just not going to hang together the same way. So you... I feel like I see a lot of theater where individual elements are strong, but it's not always working together. And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why that happens. It need, you need a strong visionary, or vi- a strong vision, I'll just say it that way, whether it comes from the director or the writer or the producer or all of them in tandem. And that, if there's a clear vision... Everyone can do their work, and everyone can do their best work. Nobody in theater, no, none of the, nobody on a creative team, sets out to do bad work or to not communicate with an audience. But it happens. You know, I, one of the first shows I saw when I moved to New York was Nick and Nora, which was a mess, but written by and directed and everything by you know theater luminaries. And you and I remember thinking, like, wait a minute, this should have been much much better given all the people involved, but it just wasn't. And why, I don't know. I, I, you know, And the theater is littered, is a good word, with, with shows which, for whatever reason, really good people have worked on them, but it just didn't come together. I mean, I worked on Susical, so I could write a book about that. You should write a book um, about that. Which was a fascinating experience, and, and we walked out of the workshop of that going, this is the hugest hit in the world, and this is going to be brilliant. And it never, it never gelled past that, and I... I won't go into now why I think that happened, but you know, by the time it opened, they had replaced the director, they'd replaced the costume designer, they'd replaced the set designer. I don't, there may be some actors, I don't remember, but it was clearly there were bigger issues than individual people. I mean, everybody did what they thought was the right work. It's fascinating. You know, there's a moment in every person's life when they realize their parents are human. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's a moment in that on Broadway when you see your first show by amazing people and doesn't, and you don't like it. Like, mine was the goodbye girl. Yeah. Like, I, I, and yeah. I just moved to New York. I saw a full-page ad in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Marvin Hamlish, David Zippel, Martin Short, Bernadette Peters all these amazing people and I was like this is going to be the most amazing yeah. show Neil Simon wrote the book mm-hmm. right 
And I go, and I was like, why am I not enjoying this? Because it just didn't all come together. Well, to me, the biggest question about when you're you're going to do a musical, the first question you have to ask, and I'm talking about doing a revival of something or doing a new musical or whatever it is, why? Why this story and why right now? What are we talking, what are we saying to the audience? Um, What is our, you know, here's, okay, here's, here's David Chase Theater 101. Which is, I think there are, it's important as a member of a creative team, as an actor, as an, even as an audience member, to be mindful of sort of three layers of context, which is when is this piece actually set? You know, what year, what, what year are we saying we're in when we're in the musical? The other is what year was it, or what is the cultural context of when it was written, which is often different. Um, sometimes pieces are contemporary, but more often than not, you you have, for example, you know, 1943, Rodgers and Hammerstein writing about Oklahoma, but it, you know, 40 years earlier. And then when is the audience viewing it? So the audience in 1943 watching a musical in 1943 is hearing certain sounds that they're very familiar with because of the context of in which they are experiencing it. They're not weirded out by all the sort of operetta things that are still in the musical. By the time you get to, or or Carousel, it's another example. There are lots of operetta things in Carousel. You get to later, and there are people who are uncomfortable with the operetta. So you have to choose how you approach that. They're not even necessarily aware that it's operetta because that's not part of our national dialogue anymore. Um, actually, I'll give a very specific example, which is working on Cinderella. You know, the big love song or the big romantic song is 10 Minutes Ago, which is a very lovely and very straightforward Richard Rogers waltz with a sort of classic Hammerstein lyric of sort of that I'm professing love without actually saying I'm in love with you, which is instead I'm kind of wondering how I, how you walked in 10 minutes ago and now I'm feeling this way. Which, and if you listen to the original recording, which is 1947 from the TV, or the, you know, the TV version that started in 1957, and you realize that for, like my mother was in high school in 1957, and the musicals they were doing in my mother was doing in high school were what do you think? Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, a little later than that, but it was you know Red Mill and the Chocolate Soldier and you know all the 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 Strauss and the you know uh, all of those sort of you know operettas. So the height of of sophisticated adult romance in 1957 in the eyes of a, you know young people. Was mm pa pa mm pa pa mm pa pa. Well, now that sounds incredibly old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy, even in the context of say Wunderbar, which is the same reference to an old operetta. But in Cinderella, it felt to to make that speak to a theater audience in 2013 without changing the waltz. It felt like there was a way to make the accompaniment seem a little bit more. Theatrically immediate, but still sound like Rogers. So what? And I and I looked at the fact that this was 1957. It's like what else is happening in the in the world of musical theater in 1957? One of the things was West Side Story, 
And Bernstein famously used the tritone, which is the the main uh, sort of melodic motif of Maria, for example. And it, when you look back at Rogers, you go, he uses a tritone all the time. It's like the, the March of the Siamese Children, and Bali High, and uh, in Flower Drum Song, it's he used it generally to indicate sort of exoticism, but that was very much a part of his language. So I found a way to use a tritone that in, in the accompaniment to 10 minutes ago, that sort of said in a way that I thought Rogers might indicate the mystery and the, the wonder of that moment. And that was very far away from the oompa the waltz, but still trying to feel true to Rogers trying to feel true to 1957, but speak to an audience today. Do you think there should be a Tony Award for what you do? This is your chance. Who votes for the Tony Awards, Ken? Are there any musicians who vote for Tony Awards? No, there are not. Sorry, I I jumped in to answer that. Very good. Very good Um, for you to cut me off like that. No, the... Here's the challenge, because I've been involved, because I've also been a music director, spent 20 years conducting and doing eight shows a week. And, and that question has come up several times over the last 25 years um, about whether... Because there was a Tony Award for music direction up until 1964, and Don Pippen was the last person to win one, which was for Oliver. And then the Tony Committee sort of said, well, we don't really understand what music direction is, so we're going to stop giving the award. Which I actually, and I know there are music directors who will now shoot me for saying this, I understand that decision because the people that are voting for Tonys have no idea what music directors do, what dance arrangers do, and frankly, they have no idea what orchestrators do, and sound designers, and lighting designers, and set designers, and so on and so forth. My observation is the orchestration nomination and sometimes the award often goes to the the show with the most visible band, which is different from the best orchestrations. I think the sort of the, the nadir of that was giving the the Tony for orchestration to uh, Billy Joel, who took the award and went, well, I had nothing to do with the orchestrations, but thank you. Which, you know, not that he isn't deserving of some kind of recognition, but it just went to show. Or there was the year, and I think this was, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, when Nathan Lane hosted and basically made fun of the orchestration award, like, Nobody here knows what that's about. Okay, moving on. And I get that, which is that it's not, you know, the Tonys are not my party as a, as a Broadway musician. They're the producer's party. And producers decided that music is not a marketable part of Broadway. So what I would love to see change is an awareness that music is something that the audience is interested in. Not just the sets, not just the lights, not just the marketing campaign. And that a lot goes into the music in a Broadway show. But here's, so I'll, now, I'll, okay, I'll leave you with two other, and these are really music director, not dance arranger stories. I won't leave you with this, but I'll pass these on. I do recall, so talking about Kiss Me Kate in 1999, John Lahr, who certainly grew up around the theater, who was a critic for the uh, New York New Yorker, right? Yeah. Um, so John Lahr in, reviewed the show, and loved it. And he praised Michael Blakemore. And, and the, the line was something along the lines of like, a, you know, the reason that Michael Blakemore was, 
you know, functions so beautifully as a director. He was like a great field marshal. And he had surrounded himself with the cream of the Broadway creative team crop. All, you know, and, and trusted them to do their work. And then he rightfully listed Kathleen Marshall, choreographer, Robin Wagner, set designer, so on and so forth. Basically listed the entire creative team, but nobody in the music department. And not that I felt that I should have been listed, or even that Don Sebesky, who was the orchestrator, but if your argument is that this is the best team you could assemble, and your music director is Paul Gemignani, that would be name number one on my list of creative team people I would have assembled. As if you can get the best, get the best. Didn't even occur to him to include Paul. I find that mind-boggling, but it's because... For whatever reason, music is not part of the collective understanding of what makes Broadway musicals. So this is my last question. Okay. You may have just answered it, but now you'll right. have a chance to talk about something else, which is my genie question. So I okay. ask all my guests this. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes mm-hmm. to visit you. Did you do Aladdin? No. Okay. So the genie comes to uh, visit you and says, I want to grant you one wish. Mm-hmm. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you crazy, that makes you angry, angrier than the previous subject, or more frustrated than the previous subject, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? High ticket prices. And the reason being that I would love it if Broadway was something that was easy for people to go to, because I think it has enormous amounts to say. I think it tells great stories. I think... It's not always relevant, but not all art is. But when it's really relevant, it informs us and it educates us and it transports us in a way that nothing else can. And I wish that that experience was more universal. There was a time, and yes, the culture was different, but there was a time when going to see what was on Broadway was important to people. I know that there, you know, you've done enormously interesting things for outreach to to new audiences and to get people in the theater, and it may be more than just the ticket prices. So maybe I'll widen my answer to say, I wish there was a way that we could reach more people. Now I'll go back to Hamilton and say it's amazing that Hamilton has become what this phenomenon which is more than just theater it's a cultural phenomenon of this moment and that i remember seeing it mentioned like on the financial pages of you know i remember maybe it was the new york times in some way that just whoever was writing assumed that the reader knew all about hamilton and far far away from the theater pages um i think that's fantastic and you know I wish there was a way to keep that dialogue with sort of the culture as a whole happening. I, you know, we, we have challenges because we have a, you know, we have brick and mortar stores. You know, we can't be Amazon. Um, we have a limited number of seats. We have a limited number of, uh, of resources to do this. And there's only so many people that can experience this. I do appreciate that that's always been the case. But there was a time when there was more cultural awareness of Broadway. 
now I think it's not that the moment has passed, but I do think it's sort of transitioning from the popular art form to a more rarefied art form. And listen, I've been doing Broadway musicals and opera houses the last few years, and it's you know it, it brings in a whole different audience. I've been doing you know we did the live TV things, uh, which brought in all, I mean the number of people that that sound of music inspired. And that was the first one, which was full of all sorts of discoveries about, you know, technical and otherwise about how to do these. And I think they've gotten better and better. Um, but it opened up a new audience. And so, I, you know, maybe I'm now, you know, stepping back from my initial statement, but I wish that there was a way I don't see as many shows because I can't afford it, you know? So that's, I wish there was a way to get more people in the Broadway theater. That is a great wish to, to leave yeah. us with. I want to thank you not only for helping us, including me, understand what a dance mm -hmm. rater does, but that was like a master class in music on Broadway today. Uh, so thank you for that. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.